life is full of a lot of different kinds of experiences. I had a conversation with Jason just a few minutes ago where Jason asked me, uh, so what's up with you? And I said, nothing. Because we, most of the time, we live our lives with the everyday. I get up, I go to work, I run errands, I eat sometimes twice, sometimes only once. I hang out with my family, I play with my dog, I go to bed, I get up the next day and repeat, right? Now, by and large, these events are unremarkable so that when Jason asked me what's going on, do I mention that I woke up every day this week? Probably not. Jason's going to assume that I did that every day. They're, they're, they're unremarkable because they happen with such frequency that I wouldn't even think to mention most of those things. So that's probably the largest category of our time. Falls into those kinds of experiences. They're not cool or fun or interesting. And so we don't talk about those kinds of things for the most part. Unless something went wrong, we might share that then. You know, my horrible toothbrushing accident of 2003. You know, we talk, might talk about those things, but by, large, by and large, we'll let them go. Um, then there are other experiences that will fall outside of the mundane. Now, this can cover a lot of different grounds, okay? Uh, maybe you had an extraordinary meal that the experience really stood out to you, and so you can tell other people about this extraordinary meal, mainly as a way to make them feel jealous that they didn't have that same extraordinary meal, but you know, the intents of your heart, let's just say that they're good uh, when you're sharing that. And then there's other things, like maybe you went on vacation and the vacation was really nice, uh, or maybe you got a new job or there, you did something interesting that you wouldn't normally do. And that's the key to this category of experiences. They stand out because they are not normal. It's not the everyday stuff. And again, so this covers probably a, a lot of ground, you know, between um, from interesting to really extraordinary. And then there are experiences that are life-changing. And this is the smallest category of experiences in our life. After all, not every experience can be life-changing. Otherwise, you'd be changing your life all the time. <clears throat> what makes something life-changing? Have you ever thought about that? It's, it's a term we use, like that was a life-changing moment. Well, what makes something life-changing? Well, Bryce, it changes my life. Thank you. I appreciate that input. You're very helpful. Uh, but what we mean, at least I think, when we say that something is life-changing is that this event um, alters the narrative of our life or our understanding of our life for the world around us in some way that causes us to live or think differently after it happens. So these are very special events that we don't have very often. Now, the other thing about these kinds of events is we may not realize they were life-changing until later. So it's not like we always have an epiphany in these moments, but maybe something happens that, that you know, down the road you realize that was the moment, that was the time, that was the place where my life changed course. For example, one of the most important moments in my life was when my girlfriend dumped me in a letter 
on Valentine's Day in 1996. I've totally gotten over it. It's fine. Like, I hardly think about it at all. Like, it's, you know, water under the bridge. Um, Now, that moment, I was not aware that the event was going to be something that I would look back on as uh, a catalyst for change in my life. But it was a huge moment for me. I was 19 years old, and I wanted to be an English teacher. You know, that's right. (laughs) Dreaming big. Dreaming big. Wanted to be an English teacher. And um, my girlfriend broke up with me uh, in a letter on Valentine's Day in 1996. Again, water under the bridge. Um, And because she broke up with me, she was back in Fresno, I was at Pepperdine, I did not go back to Fresno for that summer. I didn't want to be anywhere near here, near her. So instead, I took a job uh, as an intern at a church to be their youth minister for the summer. And that experience led me to do it again the next summer, which led me to change my major, which led me to where I am today. Now, can I conclusively say that if me and that girl had stayed together, that I wouldn't have become a minister. No, of course not. However, I can directly relate my path to that moment. Interesting, right? All of us have these kinds of things. All of us have these kinds of things that, that are, are life-changing, and, and we probably share some in common, like uh, getting married or having children or... Uh, Other things for me, I I share a a common moment with some of you about my struggle with depression and the kinds of things you have. All of these uh, are life-changing moments, and and these moments for me, whether it was uh, getting dumped or whether it was my struggle with depression or whether it was getting married to the most wonderful woman or all these different things, like this, these moments changed my life. They changed my life. When we read through the Bible, sometimes we forget that we are reading stories about people's lives. Now, here's what I mean by that. We know we're reading stories about people's lives, right? We know that these are people who are living and breathing. But the thing we forget is that they did normal, everyday sorts of things that generally we don't know very much about. Because most of those general everyday things are not listed in the narrative. They're only listed if that normal everyday thing led them to something else that was more extraordinary. There may be other events that we hear about, but don't have a whole lot of significance, although they may be interesting and out of the ordinary for that particular person. A lot of what we get in the biblical narrative is the extraordinary moment, the big thing, the thing where someone's life was heading this direction and all of a sudden through an encounter or uh, some moment their life changes. We're starting a study on the book of Exodus and the Exodus is just such a story. It is a truly defining experience in the story of God and his people. Life was one way before the Exodus and a completely different way after. 
And I want you to know, if you are thinking then of the Exodus in terms of slavery and freedom, you are selling the Exodus story short. Because while that might be the theme of the Exodus, the Exodus is about way more than that. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around just how significant this story is. And I get it, like we come by it honestly, because everything pales in comparison to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, that is a defining moment for us. But would you be interested to know that some people call the Exodus the Easter of the Old Testament? That is is how important it is. It is truly that big of a deal. Its significance was unparalleled until the coming of Jesus. The Exodus brings shape to who God is, who his people are, and the relationship between the two. Think for a moment about the similarities between Easter and the Exodus, because there are quite a few. By means of God's miraculous power, people are saved from an evil before which they are powerless. As a result, those who have been saved enter into a new dimension of their relationship with God, a reformation of an existing covenant. In spite of their continued sinfulness, God clings to this newly uh, covenanted community as they cling to God. And in their joyful acceptance of God's initiatives, they saved People, the saved people assume new understandings of the trust placed in them as God's covenant people. It's the story of the Exodus, and it's the story of Jesus. They are very close to the same story. Just worked out in different ways. In the Exodus, God clearly intervene in the history of man in defense of the powerless. And the Old Testament refers back to the Exodus over and over again. These, these verses won't be on the screen, um, but let me read them to you here really quickly. From Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 through 17. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. So we see in this that the Exodus becomes an important image when the people are going through times where they are facing an enemy that is strong and powerful, and maybe they feel like they can't stand against that enemy. So the prophets call them back to the time of the Exodus when God defeated their greatest enemy. From Psalm chapter 106, verses 8 through 12. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as, the, as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. So something I want you to understand, and this continues to this day, that within Judaism, 
There is no event more powerful or significant or symbolic of the relationship between God and his people than the Exodus. It is the apex. It is the time where God's people become God's people. And its power, we can't overstate. We can't overstate its significance. And, and we see the power of the story. It's one of the ways that we know that, that, that a story or a narrative or something is so powerful is when you start to see that story played out in culture, where, where it becomes something that people who are not going to church even or, or referring to church things use that image because the image is so powerful. In the 17th century, the image of the Exodus inspired English Puritans and parliamentarians in the battle against an overbearing king to separate. It was a motivator for the pilgrims as they set sail across the Atlantic. Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin used it as their image when they drew their designs of the great seal of the United States. When African-American slaves sang of freedom, they sang about Moses and their God, the Deliverer. Martin Luther King spoke of the Exodus on the last night of his life, speaking of how Moses looked across to the land that was not yet claimed for his people. And oppressed Christians the world over looked to this image of a God who liberates his people from the oppressor. I know I didn't have to convince you of this going ahead of time, but I need you to look at this in a different way. That the Exodus is not just a story from the Old Testament. It is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Now, why do I need you to understand that? Well, because it's a story we've heard so many times. It's a story that that we've read and studied and we've talked about. There's a movie about it, more than one movie about it, right? It's that big a deal. And yet, it is so common to our experience that we might have a tendency to think we know what it's all about. And I want to suggest to you this morning that as smart and wise as you are, you may not know as much about it as you think. So you need to give this story, one that you are so familiar with, air to breathe. You need to let it take shape as we go through the events and the moments that are so important. Okay? So what do you need to know before we get into the story of the book of Exodus? Well, number one, you need to know that God made a covenant with Abraham. Yes, it does go all the way back to there. From Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, here's why we go back to this moment. God chose Abraham. And God promised Abraham that one, he would be a great nation, that two, his name would be great, that three, he will be blessed, and that four, he will be a blessing to others. 
And this covenant is expanded upon throughout the story of Abraham uh, to include the land of Canaan, this place where God promised them, this, is, this will be where you settle, this will one day be your home. And this is significant, this moment, because it was the promise of a future, a family, a home, and a special relationship with God. Now, this promise was passed down to the following generations, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to his sons. And so these words, this covenant became the legacy of this family. It's, it's who they were. It's what defined them. And they passed this down through the generations that they were the chosen children of God and that their future did not lie in their own actions or the actions of those around them, but it lied firmly in the hands of God. Now, out of this string, we know, because we just studied it for 10 weeks, that Joseph brought his family to Egypt under special circumstances. Through less than honest measures on the parts of others, Joseph ended up in the land of Egypt, and he rose to second in command to the Pharaoh. And most importantly for our story today, he guided Egypt through a time of extreme famine. So, he moved his family to Egypt where they were given the best land and all that they needed to be successful. So now we're going to leap into uh, Exodus chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, open up there. And chapter 1 of the book of Exodus is a prelude to the story of Exodus in three parts. But I want you to know that chapter 1 is one of the most important chapters in this whole story. Because it sets the stage for us. And look, I get it. There's a lot that happens there. But if we don't take our time with chapter 1, we're going to miss some stuff later. All right? So we, we need to, to dive into this here. So let's look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay. This is really important <laughs> okay, for us to get here. And here's the thing that we need to remember as we go through these verses, and that is when Jacob's family went to Egypt and settled there, they were a family and not a nation. Okay? They were a family and not a nation. They were a large family, Seventy in all their households. But that was the whole number of people that moved to Egypt. Um, now, when I say they're, no, they're not a nation, here are some things we need to consider. Because they started out as a family, right? And they, they grow. So number one, if they're not a nation when they go to Egypt, 
do they have um, an established relationship with God? Yeah, they did. They had an understanding of who God was and the covenant which is being passed down to them. Did they have instructions on how to live and how to be the people of God? The answer is no, they did not. Okay? What they had was this blessing passed down from generation to generation. Third question, did they have a set way to worship God or relate to God? The answer is no, they did not. Or at least from as much as we can take specifically from Scripture, it does not seem so. And now it's been helpful for us to have done these other studies because when we look back at the lives of Abraham, of Jacob, maybe you recognize that there are not that many accounts of worship. Worship typically happened in those stories when a meaningful event took place. And that meaningful event made that location special. And therefore, whenever they came across that location, they would make an offering to God. Now, you need to keep in mind as well that making burnt offerings to God was not unique to this group of people. It was what people who worshipped at that time did for whatever God they were worshipping. So in terms of the act of worship and relating to God, we know that they didn't have any sort of established practice. We also know that their communication with God was irregular. And what I mean by that is, God would come and speak to them when? When God wanted to go and speak to them. Did they have any, thinking back again, all right, did they have any sort of influence or power, if you will, over the times when God would speak to them? Not really. They would cry out to God, they would speak to God, and God at times would respond to those cries and those calls. But in terms of them being able to go to God on a regular basis, communicate with him, and worship him at all times, there simply was not an established routine. Nor was there anywhere for them to go on a regular basis in order to commune with God. Now, all of that is the underlying premise from where we pick this up. The family moved to Egypt, and that generation of the family, they all died. But the people, their family, were fruitful and multiplied. Now, this is not much of a surprise if you're paying attention to the whole story, because this is a fulfillment of part of the covenant, isn't it? That they will be fruitful and multiply. And according to this account, they are very good at being fruitful and multiplying. It is something that they excel at. 
And the only way to understand for us that they will be a great nation is for them, first and foremost, to increase in number. At some point, they have to stop being a family and start being a group of people that goes beyond family. You understand what I'm saying? For, so that we can understand this situation better. So as a matter of fact, the family that started at 70 increased from that group of 70 to a nation of 600,000 men during the time of the Exodus. Now there should be a question that comes to your mind. How long did it take them to go from a family of 70 to a nation of 600,000 men? You can be really fruitful and multiply, and that's still going to take a while. You understand? So not only in this section are we dealing with a situation that we probably haven't thought about much in terms of them not being established, but a ton of time is passing as well. So here's something you need to consider. The last person in the Genesis story that spoke openly with God was whom? was Jacob. By the time we get to the end of this paragraph, how long has Jacob been gone? A long time. Like a really, really long time. Generations have passed. And Jacob was the last person, per Genesis, to have spoken with God. Now, Let's ask ourselves some common sense questions, knowing all that we know now. <clears throat> Where were they living? Egypt. Did Egypt have an established way of life, a hierarchy in society and culture, and a way to worship their gods? Yes. Does the land that the Israelites, the Hebrews, are living on, does it belong to them? No. It belongs to Egypt. It is, and, and this is important not just because they don't own it, but this is not the land that God promised them. And do you remember what Jacob, Jacob's sons, and Joseph all said? This is not our home. Our home is somewhere else. Make sure that we are buried in our home and not here. But now we're at 600,000 men, and this is their home, even though it's not theirs. It's Egypt's land, and they have lived there for generations. So what dictated their customs and style of life? How did they live? Well, most likely they lived like Egyptians did. But we do know that they stayed distinct in some ways. Uh, both because we have a number, roughly, for how many there are, and because Egypt recognizes them as different. They are not Egyptians. They are this group of people. But common sense tells us that they were living as Egyptians even though they did not adapt all the Egyptian customs. So who are they when this story picks up? Not yet. 
They're not yet slaves. They are, (laughs) and it needs to be this way, just trust me on that, they are a large, tied together, indistinct group of people who are living in a place and a culture that is not theirs, though they live by its rules and all the other things that go along with it. Did they worship Egyptian gods? We have no clue. We don't know. Did they look and dress like Egyptians? We don't know. Did they follow Egyptian laws? We would assume so because they're living in Egypt. So do you see what kind of situation we're in here? We have a tendency to start the Exodus story thinking about the people of God as the people of God. And the hard thing for us to wrap our minds around is that they are not yet the people of God. They are from the chosen line. But do, what do they know about God? And what do they know about being his chosen people? Very little is, is the best we can say in this moment. So, that was part one. The people flourish. Part two, the people of God flourish too much. They are over-flourishing. From Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Okay, so we have reached what is really the big problem of the first part of the Exodus story. And that is, the people have been growing and flourishing, and Egypt recognizes it. Egypt recognizes how big and powerful they are becoming, but they do not punish the Hebrew people. Why? Because of Joseph. Joseph saved Egypt. And they remember that Joseph saved Egypt, and so they go along with it. But, critically, there is a new king who, to whom Joseph means nothing. And while we can imagine that this has been building for a long time, this king, this new pharaoh, doesn't remember Joseph any longer. Joseph might still be in the histories, right? But that was a long time ago. And why are we as Egyptians making decisions for our country based on one person who did something good for us generations ago? Doesn't that seem outdated? 
Doesn't that seem like something that is not in the interest of who we are? Now, how long did it take for this to happen? Again, we can't be sure, but it's been a long time. So the question that we have that this poses is, if the Hebrews are not the people of Joseph in Egypt, then who are they to Egypt? They are foreigners. And it's amazing that they were able to keep this distinction, honestly, for all this time. That they are, that they are foreigners, that this place does not belong to them. And furthermore, that there might be a threat involved with these people. These people are too numerous, so much so that Pharaoh looked at them and decided that something needed to be done. And there are some interesting observations that Pharaoh made. Number one, they are getting to be too numerous for us to control, which is, you know, sort of insinuates that up to this point, Egypt has been able to stay on top of the social and cultural relationship. But Pharaoh looks at it and says, there's getting to be too many of them, and we're going to lose our hold of, of being on top of this. So he makes this sort of assessment. What if they join an enemy? What if they join an enemy, and now they know everything about us, and they're so numerous, we would certainly fall to that enemy. But the Pharaoh also recognizes that he can't let them simply leave. Why? Because they have lived there for generations, which means they are a part of the Egyptian economy. And you cannot simply send a group that large away because your economy is going to collapse. They cannot sustain everything that they have specifically on their own. But they have to do something in this moment, otherwise things might get out of hand. So the Egyptians, while they still could, made the Israelites their slaves. Now, here's something we don't think about. The Israelites have been living in this place for generations. It's basically their home. How did this happen, literally, that the Egyptians made them, changed them from quasi-equals to slaves? The reason why I ask that question is that process had to have been brutal. It had to have been really ugly subjecting them to slavery in that way. But it was a shrewd move on their part. It put the Egyptians back on top of the social and cultural dynamics indefinitely. To put it in simple terms, they simply they established dominance over the people. It gave them a workforce which allowed them to complete major promises. I don't know if you caught it there, but through... Hebrew slavery, they built two cities. Not two storehouses, friends, two cities. They did that through the work of the Israelites. They worked them as hard as they wanted to because a large part of this, the purpose of this, was to break them as a people so that they would no longer even consider rising up against Egypt. So they worked them as hard as they wanted to, turning them into tools 
to be used to further Egypt. There was just one problem with this. I mean, they were getting so much accomplished. They were back on top. Everything was going their way, except that this ruthless labor did not break the Hebrews. In fact, they continue to flourish even under the most difficult circumstances. From an objective point of view, sitting outside this story, we need to recognize the extraordinary nature of that. Putting people into ruthless circumstances where they cannot really care for themselves and are at the whim of others does not typically build up a people. But in this case, it did. Which leads us to part three of chapter one. They must be stopped. They have to be at this point. So let's look at verses 15 through 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And in one of the greatest off-the-cuff explanations ever, they said, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. We're simply too late to do anything about it. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Okay. So what was the main initial issue that Pharaoh had? It's that they're becoming too numerous and too powerful, and he didn't want them to rise up. So this move by Pharaoh, killing the baby boys, and the reason why they killed the baby boys is that it's a patriarchal society. So... The, fam the male line is more dominant than the female line. And if you kill all the boys, there are no longer heads of the house that are Hebrew to lead forward. And the women can be taken by Egyptian husbands or someone else, and basically the line gets diluted enough to where the Hebrew people decrease in number. So this move is set to do that action. It will literally decrease the number of Hebrews. It will keep them from continuing the line of their people. But it's also a symbolic measure. Because if trying to break their spirit through ruthlessness did not work, they can break their hearts through killing their children. And surely, they will not bounce back from this. It didn't work. It didn't work. They continue to be blessed and to flourish. And in a good note, we see God's activity in this. We see that God uh, is feared, so we know that God is at least talked about some, right? Tells us that. 
There is knowledge of God amongst the people. And it also tells us that God is working to help them flourish and to grow. This command sets the stage for this guy named Moses to come onto the scene, the one that God calls to deliver his people. So here are the things we need to keep in mind as we start the story of the Exodus. Number one, it's a large group of people, not yet a nation. Number two, they have lived for generations in Egypt without any standardized moral code from God or standardized forms of worship. Number three, they were once equals but made slaves by masters that wanted to break them. And lastly, as we kind of close this out this morning, we need to look at one of the most peculiar passages in the book of Exodus. And it comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is a curious passage, isn't it? Because what does it, what does it seem to say? That it wasn't only the Israelites who were distant from God, but God was, in some ways, distant from them. He was letting life move and go whichever way it went. For how long? Generations. He was letting things play out. Now, did God literally forget about his covenant with Abraham? No. We see that God is faithful to that throughout this entire chapter, that they have been flourishing under difficult circumstances. But it demonstrates for us how little shape the relationship between God and his people had. They were undoubtedly blessed, but this tells us that the relationship they had with God was not what we usually assume it was as we enter the Exodus story. It is this dynamic and the changing of this dynamic that makes the Exodus story so powerful. Listen, it's not just about locusts and frogs and bloody rivers and all that sort of stuff. The story of the Exodus is the story of the first time that God tries to establish his people. It has not happened up until this story. And we can safely say that while they know God blesses them, they do not know God. That's safe for us to say that. They know God well enough that others might even recognize this God blesses them and I don't want to cross that God. But what do they know about him? How do they worship him? Who is he? there's this huge hole in the story. And it's out of this hole that we are going to climb to see 
what God does. So what will this story ultimately be about? Primarily, and I know this seems weird because we don't talk about this, it's about relationship. It's about what it means to know who God is and to be his people. Number two, it is about deliverance. We know that. Things change. We know it's about struggle. We know it's the difference, it's about the difference between God working and our working in the world. The Exodus story is all of the things that we have known it to be and made it to be. And as wonderful and amazing as a story that is, it is a story about so much more. I'm looking forward to our chance to dive into it. And it's for this reason. Why does all this matter? This seems very technical, like Bible classy kind of stuff. It matters for this reason. I think sometimes we have a tendency to look back, particularly at Old Testament times, and to wonder about the relationship between God. God spoke to his people. There was the temple, the presence of God was shown, and you see that throughout the Exodus story. But sometimes we forget that those amazing things that God did came on the heels of difficulty, trouble, feelings of being alone and abandoned, about not knowing who God is or where God is or how God is working, about God in some ways becoming an arbitrary presence to his people. I think we've all had those feelings or experienced that at one time or another, haven't we? The good news is that into that void, God works graciously, intentionally, and dare I say, ruthlessly. I dared. It's out there. He does this to show his people who he is. And if God had his way with this story, the people of Israel would know that their God is the God. That no one can stand before him. That he is the conqueror of enemies. That he is the overcomer of trouble and difficulty. That he is a deliverer. We need the Exodus story. Because in the Exodus story, we have examples of how much God loves us. We have examples of how patient God is with us. And it tells us that even though we might feel far away from God, God will hear us when we cry out to him, and God will act. Amen?